Welcome back to another season of Unraveling Science, the podcast where I chat to leading scientific researchers about the stories that have not only shaped the science, but also the scientist. This season, we have so much to cover from dermatology to astronomy, nutrition to immunology, and so much more. So if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season, I'm so delighted again to be sponsored by the wonderful Irish company, Biosciences Limited. Biosciences are now part of the Thermo Fisher Scientific Group, and you can check out what they supply at thermofisher.com. I'm so grateful to them for continuing to sponsor this podcast. All right, so Professor Peter Gallagher, Head of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies and an adjunct professor at Trinity College Dublin is my guest on the podcast today. So Peter's astrophysics research focuses on understanding solar and space weather, including solar wind and solar storms. He is the director of the Dunsink Observatory and head of the ILOFAR radio telescope project at Burcastle and is also a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society. And so with that, all of that in mind, Peter, I'm so delighted that you have taken the time to come on and chat to me today. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. No, lovely to come and chat. Great. Well, listen, I, we'll, we'll start right in. So talk to me about growing up. I know you're, you're from Dublin. So talk to me about growing up in Dublin and, you know, this kind of when did the fascination with kind of space and, and astronomy and astrophysics uh, begin? Yeah, I'm from uh, Clontarf and um, my dad was a, uh, a an engineer and he worked uh, for, for a company called Ingersoll Rand fixing compressors and so on. So there was always tools and um, bits and pieces of compressors and stuff in our garden and in our garage. And I was really interested in how they worked. And, and I think that's kind of what got me hooked. And then my parents started buying me books like um, Tell Me Why and Here's More Tell Me Why and Loads More Tell Me Why. And there's even more Tell Me Why. So I had all these stacks of Tell Me Why books. But I was interested in science and engineering. That that was it. I just wanted to know how things work. And I, I remember taking the TV apart one time. <laughs> my parents weren't very happy. And I think I nearly killed myself with the, um, you know, there was high voltage in the back of TVs at that stage. So I just loved taking things apart and just having a look inside and, and thinking about how they worked. And, and that to me extended to, you know, I don't know. I was just interested in um, everything around me. I, I wanted to know why the, you know, why are leaves green? And I still have problems understanding why leaves are green. But, you know, that's another story. And I was interested in, you know, growing up in Clontarf, we have um, a bird sanctuary beside us. And so I had a primary school teacher who used to bring us bird watching. And so, you know, uh, I know all the waders um, still, and I'm still really interested in, in birds and aquatic life and so on but I wasn't really interested in astronomy I, I, I just I just didn't know anything about it and um, nobody around me was interested in, in astronomy or knew anything about space but the older I got I, I, I remember Santa brought me a, um, a chemistry kit, kit when I was about 11 mm. and um, I just I didn't follow the rules at all I poured everything in together and blew it up and I, <laughs> I blew up things lots of times in my in my in my in my bedroom and then in the kitchen there used to be a mark on the ceiling in our kitchen from one of where one of my experiments had blown up and I think I preferred the explosion than anything else so I was just really interested in that kind of stuff and, um, and uh, very practical as well 
I like building things and that's reflected in my career today. Um, at school, I struggled. I have to say at primary school, I really didn't like primary school. I just I hated it. I actually had no clue what the teacher was talking about most of the time. I wasn't interested. Um, I found Irish, English, maths. I just found everything completely bewildering. <laughs> I didn't know what they were talking about. And, and it was only kind of towards my leaving cert that I began to cop on to what thing I don't I, I maybe when I was 16 I, I got a maturity and I just began to understand the subjects more and honors maths began to click with me and and that, that was an interesting one honors maths and and then I got hooked on honors maths and I thought I thought it was really hard and I was always getting C's in it and I just hated getting these C's and I was doing well in my you know geography and history I was getting A's and B's um uh maths was the one thing and I like I, I like a challenge and so it really got I remember one time actually I got this I, I just couldn't get it right and I got up out of my desk and I thumped the wall in my bedroom <laughs> when I was about 17 because my dad came running in so what's going on in here I said I can't do a maths problem <laughs> so he was like you need to go and relax um <laughs> so then going to college, I was torn between engineering and, and science. But at that time, I was getting more and more interested in atoms and molecules. I was really, really interested in atoms and molecules. And, you know, how, how do they work? Where are they from? You know, how do they stick together? You know, how on earth does an electron go around a proton? That doesn't make sense, you know. Um, and then I started learning about how molecules were stuck together. And I got into science in, in UCD. It was there that I just really realized, and actually I'd never done physics before. So hey. I, I was, and I'd never done biology really before. I didn't do them for leaving certain subjects, but physics, I was hooked immediately. I was like, ah, that's what maths is for. Yeah. I can use calculus and trigonometry. Once I know both of those, I can work out lots about the natural world around me. I can work out about how you know, how, how atoms are moving and how they stick together with Coulomb's law. I can work about how things are falling with gravity. I can understand why the sun is, you know, moving around the center of the galaxy. It, it just opened up a whole universe to me. I was blown away, absolutely blown away by it. So I, I don't know, that's, that's kind of a synopsis of yeah. where it started and where it went. And to me, it's a very, it, it wasn't a planned path. It was just a path of curiosity. Actually, mm. curiosity drew me. And that's what still is today. It's it's my curiosity. I just want to know how things work. It's it's interesting because, you know, anytime you think of astronomers, you would assume that from age five, they were staring up with a telescope up to the sky and stuff. So it's interesting to hear your your path that it was college that you really ignited this this passion. Well, yeah, that it was first year there was there was um, Anne Breslin was the professor and uh, she was kind of quite dry in her lecturing. But I sat there with my eyes wide open going, this is amazing. And, and everybody else thought I was mad. Like, how can you find this lecture so interesting? So I just did. But I did well in my exams in first year. I think I got like 60s, 65 or something in physics. And I was chuffed with this 65. This was a big thing because I was worried about taking up physics without having done it before. And now, physics is always portrayed as it's, oh, it's really hard and only the really smart people do it. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was a bit of a risk, but I got the 65 and I did well in, in my other subjects. But my parents bought me Brief History of Time uh, as a present for doing well uh, and by Stephen Hawking. And that summer I read it and I was just captivated absolutely captivated and um 
we had a, a telescope that had been lying at the bottom of, you know, a box of toys in my parents' house, you know, one of these, you know, 25 euro telescopes and I'd never looked I don't think I'd ever looked through it before I probably tried to burn some paper with it from the sun <laughs> or something like that but I propped it up I went out and I I, I made a mount for it out of wood in the back garden and I pointed it at Saturn and I saw the rings of Saturn from from Clontarf um, wow. I was like oh my god God, I can see the rings of Saturn. And it was red because the optics were so bad. It was completely red. And then I, I, I saw Jupiter. I saw the moons of Jupiter, like with a, a scratched, rubbishy old telescope that I had duct taped to the top of. Actually, to be honest with you, the mount sounds a bit fancy. It wasn't a mount. It was a couple of pieces of timber nailed together with duct tape holding the <laughs> telescope up. And, and so that summer... I got into it and I really got into it. And actually, this is terribly nerdy. I ended up going back into the library in UCD and, and during the summer and studying astronomy books. So, you know, I, and, and I was working in the ESO station at weekends and then I'd go in and I'm still studying. I studied for the whole summer about astronomy. Wow. God. Actually, I feel, feel a bit emotional talking about that because I haven't thought about that before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, look at you now. So, you know, it obviously really paid off your summer yeah. studying. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And I, you know, I read that you were probably one of the, one of the first of your family to to go to college. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my dad uh, was from Fermanagh and uh, came down to Dublin, and he was okay at school, but was kicked out of, of school effectively. <laughs> a couple of times and it just didn't work for him. He didn't have any Irish. And, you know, at that stage, it was just critical that you have Irish. He also liked soccer and the Christian brothers didn't really agree with that one. So he ended up not getting a junior cert. So my father didn't even have a junior cert, but was all, always very well read and uh, very interested in politics. And uh, there was a lot of discussion around that in the house. And my mother it was is really booky, uh, reads nonstop, read all the books in the library in Hoth where she grew up as a kid, but just didn't have the opportunity at the time in the 1950s to 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 do the leaving search. So she didn't even do the leaving search. So neither of my parents went to, to college, but they were just interested in um, encouraging us to study and encouraging us to read. And my mum in particular wanted us to go to college. Uh, she really wanted us. And it's funny, dad would have said, well, you know, go to college and become an architect or an engineer or whatever. And my mom said, do what you love and follow that. And um, it's interesting when I did astrophysics, my dad was my dad was not impressed. That I really? Like, who gets a job as an astrophysicist? And But my mom was like, just do what you love. And well, she was right. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think they saw college as a route to a better job. And, you know, for many people that, that is true. But for me, it was never about the job. Mm. You know, I got a good job at the end and I'm very happy that I have a very good job, but it wasn't the goal. Maybe I was a bit, a bit of a dreamer and a bit unpractical. And, uh, but then at the end of college, I had a, a bit of a, a moment where I was like, sugar, I do need a job. Mm. And, uh, and I went and I did a master's in optoelectronics in Queen's University in Belfast because I thought I was going to work for Intel or something like that. You know, I'd learn how lasers worked. I'd learn how, you know, solid state. I'd learn how microchips work and then I'd get a good job. And then I do astronomy at the weekends, okay. um, <laughs> like, like so many other people do. But then 
I I did very well in Queens. I I just I was I was very good at optoelectronics, and um, I came top of my class. And they sent me off to the Canary Islands uh, for four months to work at an astronomical facility, the Instituto de Astrofisica de Canarias, and they wanted me to do image processing because I knew about images and optics and stuff. But all the images I was looking at were about galaxies and stars and I was like hold on a second this stuff is far too interesting I've got to keep on studying this and it was at that point that I went ah, I've got no choice I just got to follow this and uh, and a PhD came up in Queens that said the word NASA on it and this sounds awful but I just went I want to go to NASA and, <laughs> and, and I applied and I got it and it was in solar physics and that's when my kind of interest in the sun came in and uh, Jesus I've been studying the sun from 1995 until now and wow. we're a bit further along but there's still, still a lot to do. Yeah no and before we kind of get into the whole kind of solar space weather and all that kind of thing because you know I have so many questions for you because I suppose I'm coming from maybe a, a bit of an ignorant point of view because my background's in biology and, and immunology so I hope my questions don't seem too juvenile for you or that they're <laughs> yeah yeah well you know I live with a, a biologist so um, we have different view, views on on the way we look at the natural world or even what we call the natural world but no shoot Okay, well, before before we kind of get into that, so talk to me. So you did your PhD in in Queens, but I know then you spent a good bit of time in the US. Um, yeah. And and how was that? And was there ever a point where you thought you would stay there? Because I think you were there for six or seven years, was it? Yeah, nearly six years. So during my PhD, I went out to Goddard uh, during the summers, uh, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center near Washington DC, and I was working on a spacecraft called Soho. And I mean, for a 26 year old or what, what, what was I, 23 year old um, from Dublin, and they put me in front of a, a computer terminal that had a link to a spacecraft, you know, and we were uploading the commands to a spacecraft. And I thought this was just mind blowing. But the people I met at Goddard, they were just they were fascinated about the sun they were fascinated about the spacecraft they were they were just passionate about this whole topic and uh, you know you just can't escape it but you know once i got my phd i then got offered immediately actually i think i submitted my thesis on a friday and i went and i started work you know, a week later in America, and without actually having my PhD, um, the the my postdoctoral advisor just uh, took the word of my supervisor that this guy's a good guy and mm. uh, he'll get a PhD. So I went to New Jersey Institute of Technology. Um, and worked with a, a radio telescope in California and we'd go back and forth and I was writing software for that radio telescope. Again, when I got there, uh, my boss, Dale Gary, was, Jesus, I mean, still uh, one of the smartest people I've ever met, but um, he brought me out to California. We went to the radio telescope. It's in the high desert in California. There's these enormous dishes. You're in a control room with all these whirring things going on. And you're writing the software to analyze the data from these big dishes. And, and that was really cool. But there was all these boxes with equipment around. And I was like, OK, let's get a screwdriver. So we went out and we take the back off, you know, the control panel for the tele telescope. I was like, what's that? And what's that? And that looks like a filter. And what does that cable do? And where does it go? <laughs> you know, and he, I, I was driving him nuts. Like, <laughs> I actually really don't know what's in some of these boxes. The engineers designed them. But I, 
I still believe to this day that, you know, when something happens, no matter what you are as a scientist, you, you make measurements and something's happening, you know, in a, in a test tube or something's happening, you know, on the sun or something's happening at the edge of the universe or something's happening somewhere. A physical phenomenon, a biological process, but you make a measurement. And to me, it's so important that I know when I'm looking at data on a computer screen that I know how it was, how the data were taken, how they were processed, and what, what you know, there's a whole chain of things in there that you cannot trust. <laughs> yeah. And then you, so you, so I, that's so I always tell my my PhD students now, you, you've got to know a photon was emitted on the sun. You need to know how it was emitted. You need to know how it was captured in space. You know how how it was transmitted back to the ground. You need to know how it was stored in the archive. Who did something? To that data in the archive and then when you downloaded it and you read it in what happened in the software so every single step to me is important and uh, then you can trust well i don't think you ever should trust data but you do your best to ensure that it's pristine and you understand the steps and yeah, i think that's yeah. really important to get the screwdriver out and take apart the equipment take apart the software take apart the statistics to make sure that you're getting it right in the end so i think that's there's a, a lot to be learned there yeah and not i suppose not just accept kind of what you see and even things like i suppose i'm thinking of like journal clubs and stuff what we would do in the lab where you kind of you present a paper but you don't intentionally tear it apart but you should i suppose question yeah. um these things and and question you know why do they do this and not this and you can learn from that but also you can maybe learn what not to do yeah, we, we we run a journal club um, and I've been running it since I became, a, a, you know, an academic uh, with the research group. But we have rules around the journals. You're not allowed to read a journal or present it if it's in your field. So you, you have to do something that's slightly different. But I think it's interesting for more junior people. They're quite accepting of what's in the paper. And then to see the the old the old guys in the group who start off with this is all rubbish and tear the whole so a lot of papers get torn to pieces in 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 the journal clubs, but also you come out and you go all right yeah interesting point around that and you know even though you have torn it apart but that's that's science and you've got to be careful about what's in those papers there there, there are people make mistakes and get things wrong. And, that, yeah. and then science progresses by, you know, proving people wrong as well. You know, I think there's a great, there's a great satisfaction. I'd love to prove Einstein wrong. You know, <laughs> but, you know, I'd love to prove Schrodinger wrong. You know, there's a great motivation there to have these kind of gods of science and prove them prove them wrong. Now, listen, in my field, there are the gods within my own field, and it's great to you know to say something different than than they're saying and make discoveries on the way. Yeah, and so it's challenged the prevailing view um, of of the time. It's it, it's funny. I I once was talking to somebody on a big on RT radio, and I I said I think you should be giving the two fingers to convention in <laughs> science, and they kind of went, "Oh God, you shouldn't say that." <laughs> but I was like, "Well," and and actually, I I remember Luke O'Neill gave a TED talk in Dublin or in the Borgosh Energy Theatre and he put up a picture of Sid Vicious from the Sex Pistols and like Sid Vicious was all about the two fingers to society and convention and he says we need more punk rocks punk rockers in science and I was like hallelujah you're mm -hmm. absolutely right you need people who are saying nah it's all a load of bollocks in the yeah. <laughs> use, use the Sex Pistols um, uh, phrase 
Well, actually, sorry, just, just that you mentioned that, the punk rocker thing, because I feel like you were into that when you were younger. You were a guitarist. Oh, you're looking for your guitar. <laughs> but there's a guitar here. There's a, the house is covered in guitars. Really? <laughs> but I was going to say, I don't know what the link is between very successful scientists and music, because you're, you know, uh, in, in a list of people I've had on this podcast now who have loved music and who have been are very very successful in, in their field of science so there must be some sort of link there yeah I yeah I, I, well it's an escape if if one thing is I mean no matter how passionate you are about your subject it, there are hard, hard days grants that are rejected um non-stop uh, there are papers that are rejected there are you know contracts that people you know you can't get them renewed you know it's kind of there's a lot of travel there's a lot of pressure to deliver and and a lot of it comes from yourself so letting off steam is an important part of what we do you know and there's only so much a walk can do for you as we all know knocked out at the moment you know not another feckin walk <laughs> but but for me i mean music is is very important i i find with guitar and and i actually i'm sure that uh, guitar got me through the leaving cert so you could go into your bedroom pick up your guitar and strum away for 10 minutes and it could be e a d g b e you know <laughs> you know it could be a couple of chords or you could be working on you know a solo that you heard in iron maiden and it just it's a completely different part of the brain where you chill out and relax and i still pick up the guitar and i'm, I'm all right at the guitar but i still bear you know i tend to play like 12 bar blues you know and i tend to play you know i still play a bit of metallica and um you know drive my wife mad and actually <laughs> the children don't like metallica either so <laughs> but i you know i do love a good crunchy guitar sound and uh, a horrendous guitar solo as well Oh gosh, yeah. I'll have to get. We'll have to get now a super band between yourself, Luke O'Neill, and Cormac Taylor. I mean, Cor- Cormac <laughs> Taylor played guitar on this podcast last season. So, oh really? Oh, yeah. you should have told me. I, you should have told me. I would have. I would have got the Marshall out. Um, but I have. I have my two boys now playing guitar. So in the kitchen there are one. There's. Well, I think there's four guitars in the kitchen at the moment, and my ten year old plays. He he's actually. He's he's really into the kind of bluesy stuff and stuff with a bit of rhythm, mm. whereas my 14 year old, he likes the more classical pieces okay. and he, he loves the technicality of, of like maybe classical guitar, Spanish guitar. Uh, so, you know, which is great. And, and it's lovely to hear them play. And I don't really encourage this is funny you kind of expect academics to be kind of hothousing their kids we don't hot, we don't hothouse them and don't expect them to you know be just you're studying 400 hours a day and we expect straight a's and you know we want you in the academy doing music i want guitar to be an enjoy an enjoyable mistake mistake uh, escape for mm. them I don't want it to be a chore and i think uh, i feel that a lot of people make a mistake around music that they they make it an academic discipline. Like I didn't want my son to study music at school. He had an option. I was like, no, don't turn it into an academic subject. Have it as your escape. And and I think the boys now have that appreciation for guitar where, where they pick it up in the morning before breakfast and they strum. Yeah, you know, that's so nice. That, that, that's really important. So do you think either of them will grow up to be future ast- astrophysicists? Probably not. No, no. I, I think my, my eldest son is obsessed with business and money. I don't know where he gets it from. Actually, I do. Grandfather is an entrepreneur and uh, is all into like with the whiskey business. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, Fionn 
my eldest boy is really into, you know, I remember bringing him to, I brought him to Lansdowne Road to a, a rugby game and he saw a hot dog stand and he was 10 and he goes, Dad, how much are they selling them for? Three fifty. Hmm. Interesting. How much do they pay the people? Hmm. And, and how much does, does that van cost? Hmm. God, you can make a lot of money out of that. So he's <laughs> always just thinking about businesses, and he's always he 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 used to make a cartoon comic book called Cube the Cube, and he'd sell it in school. So he was God. he was he's very good at art neither emma nor i can do art we're, we're absolutely appalling <laughs> matchstick men but he has art and he has business and my other boy what's what's he into soccer man united and you know i am not into soccer at all <laughs> I, do, I, I do like sports I, lo- I love rugby and gaelic football uh but I, I i'm not i just never got the soccer bug but he's obsessed with man united and all he thinks about is man united and and, and playing soccer and you know i don't know how half the windows in the back of the house aren't broken because we've got a small enough garden but he's out kicking a ball non-stop everything is about controlling a football uh, <laughs> for him so they're completely different they're the, their own people so I suppose this is a, probably a good point to bring in you know your your vast experience in I suppose astrophysics and the sun in you know kind of solar and space weather so talk to me a little bit about that and you know why it fascinates you uh, so the Stephen Hawking thing I think it's funny it, it really all goes back to that and um, he wasn't a rock star at the time you know he wasn't that famous brief history of time came out but you know in the book he was talking about like gas clouds collapsing to becoming stars and stars burning hydrogen to create helium and then helium burning to create carbon and nitrogen and oxygen and i was like oh my god that's where carbon and nitrogen and oxygen come from they come from stars stars are creating them and the big bang is where the hydrogen came from you know and all the hydrogen in our bodies comes from the big bang it couldn't have come from anywhere else it wasn't made in stars and all the carbon in our bodies are you know the desk here in front of me the the wood or you know all of it comes from these stars and that for me was just mind-blowing the origin of the elements can be explained by the big bang and stars and that that was the thing that really got me and then i got interested in stars and stellar evolution and where they came from and where they're going and black holes and all that kind of stuff but i was also i was also very frustrated by the fact that you couldn't see them very well you know you just you know they're very distant and and you couldn't really see them evolving the analogy that i like is you only have 10 minutes in a forest to work out how trees grow you know and you, you go into the forest and you see little trees and big trees but you just don't have long enough to see them grow and that's the way stars are because they're billions of years and we have a snapshot in our lifetimes and so you see small things and big things and then you have to say well that sapling there becomes that big tree over there and to me that there was something missing and so then when i looked at the sun like you can put a telescope pointed at the sun and it's bubbling away like porridge and mm-hmm. um, it's exploding it, it's there are magnetic fields that you can measure and you can see them twisting and contorting in this hot plasma this hot gas and it was very tangible astrophysics for me and also 
like I could use my atomic physics because I could get a spectrum of what was going on. And with that spectrum, I could tell it the velocity. I could tell the density. I could tell the temperature. I could tell how they all changed as a function of time. So as kind of a very practical experimental physicist, I was doing what I consider to be quite <laughs> grounded astrophysics, that I was able to make measurements and test physics on the sun. And that was really interesting. Um, and that, that made it more practical astrophysics. And I also like the aspect that the sun, you know, it's it it is the the lifeblood of our planet. You know, it's the heat, it's the light that makes life possible here on, on planet Earth. To me, that that source of, you know, these things was really interesting. But also it's not that nice sometimes. It explodes. There are these enormous explosions that happen and they create the aurora borealis, you know, they create the northern lights. Oh, and I wanted to understand that linkage. And then, you know, there's these catastrophe movie things that, you know, how bad can it get? You know, we're in this pandemic at the moment. And you're, you're like, yeah, if you'd asked us, what, a year ago, what, what do you think the odds of a pandemic are? And we'd be like, ah, very low, you know, one in a hundred years or something like that. Well, solar flares that cause dastardly effects on the earth are kind of one in a one 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 in a hundred years and so now i'm believing my research a little bit more that all this kind of curiosity about what's going on in the sun we really do need to understand how it impacts the earth we really do need to give advanced warning of this stuff that's going on so my research suddenly became an awful lot more important and relevant because of this whole pandemic and uh, you know the probability of a bad solar flare or bad solar storm and a pandemic are kind of up there and uh, the impacts can be equally bad you know gps can fail communications can fail power grids can trip out it can be bad stuff you know getting advanced warning of that or actually understanding the basic physics of what's going on is, is where we are at the mo moment and then doing kind of weather force forecasting of that is is a really practical aspect of, of what we do now we're the physicists who work out all all the bits that are going on and government agencies will work on the forecasting later on but we're still really in i don't know early stages of understanding all that so like you know when you talk about a solar storm so what does that mean um for for the sun and also for the earth as you just said you know what kind of impact could that have yeah it's a pity we can't put up pictures because pictures tell the story of the sun so well it's you know it's a beautiful ball of hot gas in the center of our solar system uh, i won't hold up the ball behind me here <laughs> because it's useless to the listeners but um you know it's this hot, a, a burning fireball is what it looks like when we look at it with x-ray telescopes or ultraviolet telescopes and it's just constantly changing but there are areas on it called sunspots and galileo you know was the first person to see these sunspots in the early 1600s but they're black dark hot objects about the size of the earth in fact they can be many times the size of the earth and in them they have strong magnetic fields and the magnetic field is like an elastic band and uh, so you think about an elastic band and and then you start twisting your elastic band and that's what happened the gas is moving around and twisting this magnetic field until it becomes it's storing more and more energy in that in that sunspot. And eventually the elastic band, the magnetic field just can't handle it anymore and it tears, it breaks. And it's holding hot gas in it, like a magnetic bottle with, it, with ba elastic bands around it. And it splits. And once it splits, it fires out this hot gas. And this gas is, is a million degrees Kelvin, <laughs> a million degrees Celsius, doesn't matter. It's mm -hmm. so hot, you know. <laughs> 
but it fires out this hot gas and the gas is made out of hydrogen it's mainly hydrogen a little bit of helium in there and it's threaded with a magnetic field so you get this kind of ball of hot gas and plasma moving through space and it's moving at thousands of kilometers per second and it can hit the earth in anything from 12 hours to three days and then you know it's pretty wispy in truth you know it's not solid it's a it's a gas cloud that's moving through space but when it does hit our earth it hits the magnetic field so a compass needle will start going crazy when one of these dorms comes so if you're navigating in the 1800s and your compass needle is moving you don't know where true north is anymore and so you know that that's a navigation problem and and today we have what are called magnetometers that are looking at compass you know they have compass needles in them and we watch them move around as the earth's magnetic field is affected and you know gps can be affected as well so navigation systems and that's important if you have a self-driving car that's using GPS and it's out by a meter. That's the difference between the car beside you and your car. If you're trying to make a delivery of Domino's pizza to a house and you're out by five meters, you're in the wrong house and it costs you money because if you do this time and time again, if you're in the military and you're trying to put a person or something worse in a place accurately and you're out, then you have casualties or you put somebody in the wrong place. There's a whole range of things that can be affected when, when your GPS system is out. And that's that's the consequence of it. Of course, there is the Northern Lights, which are just beautiful to see. And the sun is quiet at the moment, but it's on its way up. Over the next five years, it'll be more and more active because the sun goes through a cycle. It okay. actually kind of, kind of it kind of has a heartbeat that um, it goes through an 11-year cycle. And at the moment, it's, it's coming out of a quiet period and it'll go up and come back down and go up and come back down over an 11-year period. And um, we're about to go into this increased uh, solar activity phase where we get like loads of solar flares going off and loads of aurora and actually i've seen the aurora from dublin you know you always think ah oh, you got to go to canada or or you know iceland yeah you got to go to iceland or something like that but i've gone down to dolly mount beach because i knew a solar storm was on and you know like a weirdo at 11 o'clock at night down at dolly mount beach on my own but looking out across hoth and i can see the greens like it's not the big spectacular displays that you see but I can see the aurora. So I don't know why I'm talking about that, but <laughs> the aurora borealis, anyway, is there, and and we can like we kind of we kind of forecast it. It's it's a beautiful aspect of it, but also you're thinking those particles have travelled 149 million kilometres from the sun, and they're stopping about 80 kilometres above my head. Thank God we have an atmosphere. Yeah, you, know? you know, if we didn't have an atmosphere, we wouldn't have the ability to protect ourselves from from that. And if you look at Mars, if you look at Mercury, you just don't want to go to those places. They just have very thin atmospheres. They have poor magnetic fields. There's no like conditions for life are wrong. And our planet is not too hot, not too cold because of its distance from the sun. But also it's got a lovely magnetic umbrella a magnetic field that protects us from these solar particles, but also it has an atmosphere that protects us. You know, I, I say that very confidently, but our atmosphere is only 100 kilometers thick. You know, it's mm. tiny. That's here to Tullamore. You know, it's a one hour drive you know, to yeah. put it in context. It, space is very close. We live in a very thin atmosphere. And in fact, where humans live and where life is, is even less like we're 
what do we live in 10 kilometers you know maybe five kilometers is where most like most life is within mm. a couple of kilometers of the surface of the earth once you go up it gets cold <laughs> it's just not yeah. very nice to, to live there and the atmosphere becomes too thin um so we live in a very on a planet that has everything just right you know there, there is that goldilocks thing about our planet and and, and our star as well they're, they're they're pretty much just spot on and uh, you know because how do you and your research team i suppose measure things with the sun because i i you know yeah. I, I watched a talk where you talked about this kind of solar orbiter that was just launched um and it, I'm, I'm i'm guessing it's kind of some sort of satellite where you can take measurements and it kind of gets very close to the sun yeah yeah solar orbiters are an amazing spacecraft uh so so we we do our measurements measurements a number of ways we either build like radio telescopes that we built like in Burr Castle and we look at radio waves coming from the sun but also we're involved in European Space Agency and NASA missions uh, or spacecraft missions and you know the most recent one is Solar Orbiter in fact it was launched on the 10th of February last year so it's exactly one year and one day since its launch and I went to see it in Florida so and it was the last time I was out of the country but you know it was amazing we'd been working on it for 10 years uh, we were working on an, uh, on, a, on an instrument called STIX the Solar Telescope Imaging X-rays and what it does is it's about the size of a big shoebox and it takes X-rays in and then has cameras in it that um, turns them into pictures so we get pictures X-ray pictures just like you get when you go to a you know a, a dentist or you know a doctor's surgery but we get x-ray pictures of the sun um so the spacecraft was launched it took a left-hand turn past venus just after christmas and to do that it's doing it what's called a gravity assist and it's swinging into the inner solar system and it's currently in behind the sun at the moment so it's going on a, a tighter orbit in around the sun and the reason we're going close is that we can get better resolution we can get we can see finer detail on the sur surface of the sun but it's a real challenge because it's hot mm. in there and um so we have um a, an irish company actually called nbio built the heat shield well they, they built the, the protective sunblock for the spacecraft and so actually i have to hold up my mobile phone here but it's kind of like that you know it's got a casing okay. on the front of it that protects the spacecraft but there's little cameras that are poking through like in my mobile phone that are looking at the sun and we have shutters on them and the shutters open and close uh, to allow you take views of the sun but all the spacecraft, which is a billion euro spacecraft built by European Space Agency, is protected by this Irish company's technology to, to, to reject it. And we have the data. In fact, I was just talking to some of my research group there. Uh, we have we're, we're taking observations at the moment. And I have a PhD student who's Brendan Clark and a postdoc and Shane Maloney, who are working on, on those data and trying to work out, you know, what's wrong with the data, how to correct it and then try to understand what's going on in the sun. It's so cool. It's it's mad to think that, you know, something that is so close to the sun, you are getting directly fed data from on a daily basis. And that, you know, it seems quite a collaborative global effort. Yeah, things. you can't do, th do do these things on your own. You know, um, I think astronomy is different than many areas of science in that our equipment's expensive, you know, to get out to space, it's expensive. So we do things internationally. Um, so we don't do anything in isolation. Um, the idea of being, God, stuck in my attic here it's all we've always been on zoom you know people are all you know i've been on zoom for 20 years uh, yeah. well not zoom but skype or whatever so like telecons were part of my life um uh before this um and 
traveling actually was part of my life. I kind of don't miss that though. I, I the Ryanair at six thirty in the morning <laughs> to to Paris is something I really don't miss anymore. But all of it is around teamwork. You know, how do you propose the spacecraft? Well, come up with the ideas, propose the spacecraft, convince ESA to build it, get all the software right, the databases right, and then start, you know, as a community trying to understand those data. And and again, you don't just do it with x-rays, which you would have done maybe 30 years ago. We take a very comprehensive view now that we use ultraviolet x-ray radio optical images and put them all together and then we have in situ which actually is really cool you know as a biologist you do everything in situ in in the lab yeah. but for astrophysicists you can't do anything in situ it's all far too far away but with our spacecraft we're flying through the solar wind on our way somewhere and you have these little cups that are catching the particles and you can tell their energies their velocities and you can tell what they are you know if there's a bit of iron in there or a bit of carbon you know you can tell what its mass is and then what what the species is so we can do in situ astrophysics as we're flying through and then you see a flash in the sun you see bursts of radiation you see particles you see magnetic fields and you're measuring it with a spacecraft as it's kind of sitting there getting you know sorry i'm doing everything with my hands here you're seeing it with my hands but the viewer so so i i'm actually quite a visual learner and i'm quite a visual person so if it's a whiteboard or a blackboard um i'm always at the whiteboard drawing pictures and uh, uh, and trying to piece things so cartoons i do a lot of cartoon physics and you know there's a bit of mathematics here and there that kind of link them together a little little bit of physics but um yeah it's a very comprehensive view so there's uh, so you you just can't understand it all. So that's why you need that collaboration. And then also you need the theoretical modelers, I have to say that, to put data together. There has to be a theoretical connection between them. That's a whole game in itself uh, of building big codes Mm -hmm. that try to simulate the sun the solar wind and its impact on the earth. And, you know, actually we were reviewing a paper in Journal Club yesterday about a big, what's called I love this word, magnetohydrodynamic models. <laughs> and magnetohydrodynamic contain magneto, so magnetic fields, hydro, they contain fluids and dynamic in that they're moving, magnetohydrodynamic. I just like saying the word. <laughs> uh, but uh, we were reviewing a paper about that, trying to get our head around what they were saying and what they were predicting. And then we'd like to go off and see if they're right. And, uh, you know, that's part of the job of trying to pick holes in these models and well well also seeing if they do tell the truth and the data represents them all the way around they represent the data well yeah and you know you, you kind of mentioned it there as well the telescope at Burr. so that was a huge undertaking and such a huge project and from what i gather you know you were kind of spearheading this whole thing and getting the funding and getting the uh, radio telescope that is there today set up so I mean, talk to you about that journey and why I suppose you wanted it in, I suppose why you wanted it in Burr as well. I'm a madman. I think it was a crazy idea. <laughs> <laughs> the pinnacle of my career to date, the most exciting adventure I've ever been on. And I learned so much. So in Ireland, when was this? I started about 10 years ago working on this. We were in a period where we were in, you know, economic collapse. You know, people were losing their jobs. Unemployment was going getting to 20 percent or 15 percent. It was at the time. The universities were getting cut. Uh, there was no money for science. Um, SFI were very lucky that they maintained their budget, but they took this 
swing into very applied research, very uh, research that was related to industry. Basic research was really cut off in the broader sense. And so it was a very bad time to do this, you know. And and so I, I really had had a tough time with the funding agencies and, and the Irish government just weren't funding this kind of research. But we just saw it as an opportunity. Astronomy just didn't, it was actually a cheap project. It was going to be 2 million euros to get into a 150 million euro project that was, you know, the radio telescope LOFAR is a series of sites across Europe. And if we could build a 2 million euro radio telescope in Ireland, we could hook it up by fibre to this 150 million euro network and get into the biggest low frequency radio telescope in the world. And it was doing things like looking at the early universe. It was looking, uh, it was trying to find these planets with strong magnetic fields. It was looking at jets of hot gas coming out of galaxies out of stars. It was looking at solar flares in ways that nobody else was able to do. So as a scientist, I, I, I want to play with these people. I want, I want their data. <laughs> so, so I just thought it was kind of achievable. But we all sat around the table and said, we've no money, we've no funding agency who's going to support this kind of project. And um, we just went off and we wrote a white paper. I remember my wife saying, why are you writing a proposal to nothing? I was like, well, we've got to get the idea ready. you know." So we wrote a 40-page white paper on what it is and why we want to do it. And then I put it on a website and that was kind of the end of it. Um, but we just then started working with the Trinity Foundation and they said, you know, this is a really good project. It's really good for, for the universities. It's really good for astronomy. It's really good for Ireland. And they started helping us meet people, uh, companies and so on, who who would philanthropically donate to us. And we started and people just liked the idea. So, you know, I, I always remember outside cafe beside um, the Hamilton building in Trinity. And I was having fish and chips on my own on a Friday as a sad academic. <laughs> and then I got a phone call from Dennis O'Brien. He said, you were talking to Dennis, to Dermot Desmond about this radio telescope idea. Will you tell me more about it? It sounds really interesting. So I was like, um, I haven't finished my fish and chips, but we'll forget about that. And we started chatting about the radio telescope. And he said, really cool love it he said i'm going to wire you through some money how much are you looking for and i said two million he said how much do you have nothing <laughs> so all of a sudden i had a hundred grand between dermot desmond and and, and dennis o'brien wow. and that was kind of the seed but it took three years of meeting lots of people saying no and it kind of cascaded from there. Um, the people in Burr were great. They kind of liked it. They were like, well, Burr, Burr has a history in astronomy, a huge history in astronomy. And the kids started collecting some money. So the kids collected 700 euros and presented me with a big check for 700 euros. And, and I was like, God, am I taking their confirmation money? This feels really weird. <laughs> And they were they they wanted a radio telescope. They wanted contemporary astronomy back in Burr, and um, you know what I met. Minister Bruton, who was the minister at the time, and IBM started supporting us. And I remember Minister Bruton, you know, he was all about jobs at the time. And he wanted, like, because Ireland needed jobs. I says, how is this going to create jobs? I'm like, oh, God, radio telescope. I kind of learned the radio telescope trains people. It, it trains young people in Python, in data science. You know, it's got so much data that you have to be good at data science. And so we started thinking about LOFAR in a different way, not just in an astronomical way, but in a way of training people in computer programming, in big science, in big data, in data analytics and so on. And then SFI got interested in it. And then they were like, oh, this is a test bed for data science. And I was like, yeah, that's what I was saying, which I kind of 
it was getting there in my head. Yeah. And eventually a call came up and we wrote a proposal for this test test bed for data science and astronomy. And uh, and, and we got it. And the funny thing is, I, I wasn't sure if I 100% believed that we could do that. But now we're working with KX Systems, who are a data science company. They, they do money trading and we're working with them. And we've worked with a, another couple of companies. We've talked to Huawei about it. Huawei are really interested in the, the data science aspect of it. Um, we're working with um, Athlone Institute of Technology, who have kind of machine learning and AI experts who are all also interested in high frequency trading, but they're also interested in high frequency data coming from the radio telescope. So we've actually gotten to this point very organically. And all of that's really interesting for the companies, but also for us as, as astronomers, we're actually getting all these advanced methods and making discoveries using it. So it's actually been, you know, I, although I was very criti- critical of SFI at the time, this has actually been a very good benefit for us and um, that focus now i still would say that we we need to invest more broadly in fundamental research and, and basic research and i i hope I, I think there is a tide turning on that and a greater realization of the utility of it especially in the pandemic you know it is basic research that understands what's going on here i think if you tried to get funding for pandemics five years ago you may not have gotten it but that's now changed but you always have to have that reservoir of people who know lots of different things to deal with crises and you know there may not be application immediately but it may be over five years or 10 years or or 50 years like William Rowan Hamilton who was director of Dunsink Observatory invented these things called quaternions which were useless for 100 years until computer gaming came along and a space program came along and you wanted to orientate spacecraft in three-dimensional space quaternions are the way to do it but (laughs) hamilton wasn't doing it because he cared about the gaming industry or the space programs he just wanted to know how i got this maths right and and i think you have to support that kind of thing Um, and i think agencies like the european research council do that really well and, you know, just kind of off the back of that, I suppose, what what drives your passion and curiosity for, for what you do every day or why do you love what you do? Why do I love it? I don't know. I'm just in, I'm interested in it. I'm just interested in it. I just want to know how these things work. But, you know, this morning I was reading a actually on Twitter, I was reading a paper about the annals and the Book of Duro and uh, like the Book of Duro. You know, these are books held in the Trinity Library um, that are from you know 600 AD. But there's records in them of the Aurora Borealis. There's records in them of comet sightings. There's a lovely description in the annals about a supernova that exploded, a star that exploded in 1054 AD. And it's recorded in this book. But I always thought it was only the Chinese who had observed it and that's called we now call that the crab nebula you know it's it's a pulsar that jocelyn bell burnell observed or it's 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 something that the third earl of ross had seen in burr castle it's a very rapidly rotating star but you know i found that really interesting this morning you know that that was really cool but yesterday we were studying mhd models and how we were going to use them to simulate the connection between the sun, sun and the earth and this afternoon i'll interact with you know three different skype calls with three different phd students actually this morning i was talking to somebody from dcu an undergraduate student who's who's writing software to analyze data from the lofar radio telescope and we're trying to remove shortwave radio 
signals from it um, using software. And you know the tech is really interesting as well. But once he removes that, we'll see the data more clearly and we'll see these radio bursts from the sun and from Jupiter. So I just can't help myself. I think <laughs> I just really want to know what's going on and I get very excited by it. And, and I and, and actually, it's interesting as a scientist, I am a scientist very much to my core, but I love having a research group that, that I find that really stimulating. I love seeing students come in and, you know, as a first year PhD student, you know so little, <laughs> even though you're, you're, you've come through college and you've been first in your class and all this kind of yeah, stuff, yeah. which is really important. But I love seeing students realize that it's about curiosity. It's about thinking differently. It's about the hard days and the hard months and the discoveries that happen. And I have a student at the moment who's really had a hard time. She's worked for three years on something that just didn't work. It was awful, awful. And she really struggled. But now she just got a paper. And I was talking to her on the phone yesterday and just saying, God, we actually understand. We've You've made a discovery. It took three years and it took hard days. And there's something good about working through the hard times because they are hard. You know, the kickbacks are nonstop. You know, you're yeah. always getting kickbacks and you've got to just keep going. You know, being told no is part of the job. But I think Anybody who's trying to do something different or be entrepreneurial, and I think there's a huge entrepreneurial aspect to what we do as as scientists, and the kickbacks just come, and you've got to roll with it. And it's hard not to take them personally because they are your ideas; they're your babies, you know. And you've been working in them, on out, and people say it's a stupid idea, and you know it's just it's hard. But you got to keep going. I, and I, I I tend not to take things personally, and I keep going. And my feeling is always that. Listen, the person who's trying to stop me is probably going to retire eventually or they're <laughs> going to move on eventually or the policies will change or whoever's saying no will have, and, and maybe they're right sometimes. And you're like, you eventually go, yeah, you know what, they're right. And, you know, you're going for a walk on Dolly Met Strand. You're like, God damn it, that person's right. <laughs> but but sometimes you're right and then you get made and, for discoveries. And, and sometimes you know. you're right. Yeah, yeah. Of course, you admit one and you don't admit the other one. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. That's not true at all. <laughs> But, um, you know, Peter, kind of my last question that I tend to ask all my guests is if, you know, if you weren't a scientist, if you weren't in the field you are in now, how do you think your life would have ended up or what other career do you think you might have had? Oh, God. Um, my wife says I'd make a great guard. <laughs> what does that say about you? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I... I'm very visual, so I know I spot people's faces, and uh, I know I, I like I walk through London or New York or something, and I spot people I know. I'm very good at that, and I'm very good at remembering kind of uh, people and places and things. I I, I tend to um, I I disarm people sometimes where where I say I remember you in the Gale Tucked in 1983, <laughs> and uh, you used to wear a yellow jumper that had you know uh, a Nike logo. on it and they'll go how do you remember that <laughs> but I, I i i have a really good memory for that now i have a very bad memory for for some things like um, names i can't do names at all so i, I don't know where i'm going with that so you I, don't I, think 
so you don't think you'd be, you know, kind of a pilot or anything? Because I, I, I read that no. story going up to watch the solar eclipse and that you were in the... No, I'm, I'm, I'm clumsy. I'm, I'm clumsy. And I'm actually, ESA have a call out at the moment, first time in a long time for astronauts. And, um, you know, I think 10 years ago I would have applied, but I think now I've accepted that I'm not, I'm a bit clumsy. You know, you need to be a fighter pilot. I get frightened at times. You know, I've jumped out of plane 20 times to overcome my fear of heights and it didn't work I was always frightened and I, I learned a lot about myself there but just I don't, I don't know if I can it's funny what would I be if I wasn't a scientist I actually one thing I would say is I think I would have be would have rather be an engineer because science never seems to have an ending and uh, you know that you, you write the paper and you get a conclusion but it's not really a conclusion you, you kind of you get a little bit further along I think I'd love to have just been able to build a bridge and say, yeah, the bridge goes from the left-hand side or from the east to the west and cars go across it and it works. It must be really satisfying and or, or building a, a building and, you know, it's up and people now live in it. I think something satisfying about that. Do you not get that satisfaction when you go down to the Isle of Fire and Burr? Are you not thinking, you know, you, that was not there until I came about and, and now it's here? And I guess that's part of it. You know, if I look at my career, I, I love the fact that that exists. And actually, what I love even more is that people in Galway and people in, you know, DCU and people in Cork and people in Armagh are using those data. Like there's you know, 23 year old boys and girls who are analysing the data from it. I think that's amazing. You know, mm. they and it doesn't involve me. You know, they're using this facility that wasn't in Ireland before. They can now do world class science because we built this thing. And I, I think that's extremely satisfying, probably more satisfying that that for that eternal quest to get a nature or a science paper, you know, <laughs> which, of course, you know, there's nothing better than, you know, getting a big paper with your name and lights uh, and a big discovery. But there's something also very satisfying about facilitating uh, really good science to be done where it couldn't have been done before. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, well, Peter, you know, I don't want to take up any more of your time, but it's been fascinating talking to you. And thanks for being so it's entertaining um, uh, throughout the whole chat and 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 engaging. And yeah, I've, I've learned loads. So, so thanks again for, for coming on the podcast. A pleasure. I'll talk about astronomy and, and space science anytime you want to talk. <laughs> Perfect. So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences, who are now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. And if you like this episode, please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. See you next Tuesday.